I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and I'll give the prayer tonight. Lord, we thank you for life and for your blessings, which uh, you pour out upon us, and we just pray your spirit will be with us and help us to understand what we're talking about and, um, and just be able to have something that is worthwhile. So we're grateful, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Open up uh, tonight with two emails I received last week. The first one provides me with a chance to apologize. It's from Dale in Massachusetts. Uh, a woman, I love you desperately, brother. I have to call you out on your comments regarding banking last week. I know this wasn't the primary point in your message, but I have to speak out when people use banking as the root of most evil. I have worked in banking for over 30 years, so please be reminded of the following when it comes to banking, and she gives seven different points. I won't cover all of them, but she talks about banking employing hundreds of thousands of people across the country, and that the bank that she works for profit shares, the executives have gone without their bonuses when times were tough, that banks provide good benefits, health, dental, life insurances, vacation pay, paternity, maternity, uh, etc., and um, that they also contribute to charitable foundations and a number of other things that banks do. She goes on and on. And, uh, and then she says, please share this information if you can. It's dangerous to denigrate the found this foundation of our country. Renew, manage, strengthen it, absolutely. But if we were to kill it, we will spiral. Thank you for listening and love you. Sister Dale in North Reading, Massachusetts. The, uh, and I do apologize to Dale. I did in an email for my comments, primarily though, because my comments against banks, uh, stupidly, I didn't clarify this, was not at the retail level. I don't have a problem with the place I use a bank. I go and put my checks in and take them out. And the retail level, the customers, we need a place to do that and provide different services. I'm talking about the, uh, the big uh, multinational conglomerate, the banking institutions, uh, sometimes even what might be behind the Fed, stuff like that. I'm not talking about the retail level, and I know that provides a great service to our community, so I just wanted to clear that up. The second email is from Christian. He says, Sean, I enjoy your show a lot. However, I have one problem. On your most recent YouTube stream, you stated that Christians and Muslims worship the same God but Muslims just leave out his son. You uh, may have said things other than this, but I turned it off shortly thereafter. I agree with virtually everything you say besides this. I know you don't know much about Islam by your own admission, 
but I will show you from the Quran that they are not the same God. And he gives us two quotes from the Quran. Let me read them. They say from the Quran 1068, God has a begotten son. God forbid. Self-sufficient is he. His is all the heavens and the earth contain. Surely for this you have no sanction. Would you say this of God what you know not? Uh, what that quote is from the Quran is a refutation of his son. Uh, yeah, but not of the one God that we are talking about. Now, I realize that, that we don't see him the same way, uh, but I think that ardent Muslims who are seeking God and they do a lot to try to follow him in terms of self-sacrifice and all the stuff that people do, um, you know, I don't think we can say that it's a different God in their heart. I think they're seeking him. They give us another one from uh, Quran 4, uh, 171. It says, do not say three, desist, it is better for you. Indeed, Allah is but one God. Well, you know, it says in Deuteronomy, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Even Trinitarians say it's one God. So I don't think we differ there. The Quran goes on and says, exalted is he above having a son. Now that's where the difference is. Uh, to him belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on the earth. All sufficient is Allah as disposer of affairs. And he then adds, our, our emailer, you know that these statements are in opposition to the Bible, the true word of God. I'm your brother in Christ, but you're mistaken when we say we worship the same God. Thank you for your time. Well, let me begin by emphatically stating that I am personally convinced, convinced, believe, know, I will even say, go so far as to say I know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. I hope that's perfectly clear, perfectly clear from my point of view. Uh, I'm convinced it's my job as a follower of Christ to share and teach him as the way, the truth, the life, to the best of my ability, to all who seek him. But we are really funny animals as human beings. We seek for ways naturally to distinguish ourselves, uh, to establish borders and boundaries, and as a means to exclude everybody who differs from us. It's just our way. We almost can't help but do that. Um, many of us can relate to this practice when you start discussing or liking music. Um, remember the days when you loved a style of music, probably when you were in junior high school, and you found yourself kind of insulted, maybe even angry at people when they would say, your music sucks, or they made fun of it, or they claimed that their type of music is much better than your type of music. I mean, music, they say, is the universal language. So I'm using this as kind of an emblematic of God. And we get our pet musical tastes, and then what we do is we say, this is the best stuff, your stuff stinks. And you're sitting in math class, and you have a Madonna sticker on your folder. Uh, I did. And uh, some dude next to you with long hair, he's stoned. He's like, Madonna sucks. And, or you go to a punk show over the weekend, and then uh, a girl in your church group says, you shouldn't go to things like that. And you say, well, where, where do you go? And she says, I went to Captain and to Neil much better than the evil. You know, so it's a very subjective experience, the kind of art you relate to. Music is really, really touchy on how we uh, relate to it. But the way we humans are when it comes to things we're passionate about, the things that we adore, the things that we relate to, we want to promote them. We want to promote them. And we want to demote anything that challenges it or that tries to compete with it. It's just our nature. Now, whether you realize this or not, uh, 
when we start talking about God, we're in the same boat as we are when we start uh, criticizing other people's music. Uh, so uh, we divide, we claim our version is better, our insights are best, our tastes in how he is, and we find reasons to diminish another person's God. Listen closely. These are signs of immaturity. And when you're uh, young and you first get introduced to a certain type of music, immaturely you glom onto that because it touches you so much. And you try to exclude everything else because there's an us versus them. There's a fear of change. There's a fear of being wrong. There's a need to be right. And it's comparable to that old thing where they say, you know, five blind men went and they all stood by an elephant. One was at the tail, one was at the leg, one was at the trunk, one was at the ear. And they all felt what they were standing by. It's that big relativist uh, approach. And the one at the tail, they said, what is an elephant? And he says, well, he's skinny and long and has a little thing at the end. And the other one by the leg, what is an elephant? And he said, well, he's thick and round and he's got these husky things down at the toes. And the one at the ear says he's floppy. And the one at the, at the trunk says it's, you know, long and, and gushy and bl bl blows wind. It's just where you're standing. Now, I know that sounds really, really relativistic, but uh, only when we start to mature and we start to willingly open up to other music forms do you start to say there's merit there. When I was a kid, I hated country. Now I like some of it very much. And I like metal, and I like punk, and I like reggae, and I like, the only thing I don't like is that I can't stand that, so I cannot stand that form of music. And that's my immaturity. I'm sure there's something to it. It sells millions of records. But in any case, the anger is, is all there. So when it comes to religion, we have the very same thing, and it's really quite amazing. The immature in faith zealously, radically attack and defend their claims on God, radically, their view is just, this is the right, and everyone else sucks. And so I want to try to introduce you to how I see things as a sold-out believer uh, really quickly using the whiteboard uh, relative to this concept. So I want you to imagine right now that we have a Baptist and we have a Mormon and we have a, uh, a Buddhist and we have a Muslim, and we have, what else I have written down, Presbyterian, and, and you can go watch Jehovah's Witness, we have a cult member, whatever it is, okay? But I want you to pre just know that in these groups, Catholic, in these groups, there are people, there are people who love God, who seek God. We are so myopic if we start to say, I'm in this group, I'm the only one who seeks him. That's, it's, just, it's just pure egocentrism. It's not believing that anybody else down... I mean, do you ever see how some of these people approach God and seeking him and living for him? They're ardent, okay? They really are ardent. I'm not saying all of them. Not all of them in this group. Not all of them in this one or this one. But within those groups... There are people who ardently seek to know and love God, okay? Our job is, uh, so let's just say they're all looking up to try to discover God. Now, I want to describe God like this. He is music. But 
his music is love, okay? And he is looking down and he's trying to share this love with the entire world of everybody who's down here seeking him, all right? And in, our, in his realm, this cannot really be known down here in this realm. And so he sent his son. And I would say we could liken his son to vibration. And vibrations are what music is. And what his son did is he played all the instruments that resonate to people. Now, some of them haven't yet seen the sun, but they are all in one way or another looking for God, okay? They just don't realize yet. They don't realize yet all of them and in one way or another, including some of them, and including some of them, they just don't maybe really hear the music clearly because they don't understand the vibrations and where they're coming from. God can't relate to us directly, so he sent his son. What happens is religions step in and they say, we can tell you what the song, what vibrations you need to hear, but this one only plays the harp and this one only plays the guitar and this one only plays the piano and not everybody's a full orchestra there. I suggest as a Christian, and I believe that it's our job as Christians to preach Christ. And I suggest that everyone will come to know that he is the music. He's the true music. Other forms, other parts of music are there. But I would also suggest we back off on saying this is a different God. You know, these people are ardent. Uh, I can't remember who the guy was, that uh, Hindu, that we became a Christian. What is it? Sundar Singh said, it's so funny, the Christians in America, they say my, that we, meaning his people, are pagans, that we're heathens. He said, my mother, a heathen? He said, she loved God. She lived for God. She prayed to God. She sought God. She just didn't know it was Christ yet. And yet we still want to say, oh no, those devout Muslims, you know, they're not all radical fundamentalists terrorists, those devout Muslims who love God and three times a day they're facing Mecca praying to God, you know, that's not the same God. Come on. We have to let some of this go so that we can start to just share him in a good, peaceful way so that more and more people can respond to that. Okay, we're going to continue our discussion of Jesus as the Son of God and Old Testament references that are used to justify this. I want to look at one more example before we move on, uh, where Jesus, where Son of God has been misappropriated from something in the New Test, uh, Old Testament. It's in Daniel 3, uh, 25. You probably, if you've grown up as a Christian or been taught, that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bound and cast into the fiery furnace, uh, and because they refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar, there in the midst of the fire, a fourth being appears, okay? Now, when I went to school in ministry and I listened and I learned, everybody says that fourth being was the Son of God. That was the Son of God. Trinitarians use that to support Son of God before incarnation, walking among the fire. And they use that as an object lesson to say, see, he's always with you in the fiery trials of your life. And that's true. That's a true principle. He is with us. But is that a good proof text 
to prove it. And I would have to say, no, it's not. Son of God, because this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire and he sees a fourth being and Nebuchadnezzar in the King James says, and the fourth has the form as the Son of God. Capital S, capital G. That's the King James, trans, King James translation. This part of Daniel was written in Aramaic. It wasn't written in Hebrew. And the actual language should not be translated that Nebuchadnezzar said, and the fourth has the form as the Son of God, but should be, instead of uppercase and singular, it should be lowercase and plural. In other words, the Aramaic translation is um, uh, uh, Son of the Gods. Nebuchadnezzar looked in that fire and he said, this, that one has a form as the son of the gods, okay? You can check with any scholar. They'll translate it properly from that language into the true language. Not son of God, okay? So why did the King James translators make it singular and make it uppercase? Tradition, to perpetuate a myth, to attempt to increase this doctrine of a pre-incarnate Christ having the actual form of man, we really can't say. But what's intriguing about this is that Christians have long perpetuated the myth that it was pre-incarnate Christ walking in the fire with Adshak, uh, Meshach, and Abednego. And, uh, but Daniel's not a really good proof text for it. What's interesting is that the LDS in their Bible in the, in the headline for that chapter of Daniel 3, they also have borrowed from this tradition and say that the fourth being is the Son of God. Okay? And so both the LDS and Christians support this interpretation, but both are way off the mark. I bring this up to show this is why we need to get our own house in order. Because if we start to teach it right, we can show that uh, Joseph Smith simply borrowed from established traditions, incorporated them into his certain doctrine, and he was wrong because we've been wrong in how we're teaching it. First of all, they say Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan. He uh, was the great monarch king of Babylonia. He did not know, he did not worship the true and living God, nor did he have any idea that there would be a capital S son of capital G God. He would have no idea of that. So there'd be no reason for him to look into the fire and identify that fourth being as a son of God, but instead as a son of the gods, lowercase. Secondly, he didn't see a being in the form of the son of God. He said the plural. I mean, neither Aramaic nor Hebrew has capital letters, but the King James stepped in and they gave capital letters to this title. Also, ancient writings in Aramaic, Aramaic historically prove that this term was son of the gods. It's bar Elohim, and it is used in their literature to, sub, uh, to describe subordinate gods all through. So that line there is easily translated correctly into son of the gods. Finally, if you really want to see what Nebuchadnezzar was saying, if you drop down to verse 28 of Daniel 3, he himself says at the end of this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. It's very clear. And delivered his servants that trusted him. And he goes on and talks. So Nebuchadnezzar himself just says it was, has to have been some kind of heavenly being, son of the gods that has come down among them. But 
we have allowed the King James to take it, make it a support for Trinitarianism by making it Son of God singular. Um, we said that last week, contextually speaking, the Jews of the Old Testament, when reading their sacred texts, were not really looking for a Messiah to come, all the way up until the Maccabean Revolt. At that time, they looked around and said, wait a minute, Nathan said that David's throne would abide forever, and David's throne is gone. So they started reinterpreting their scripture as the promise of a coming Messiah around the Maccabean Revolt. Before that time, they never associated uh, Old Testament passages with messianic prophecy. That became something that they started to kind of lean on because they saw the throne of David was gone. I would agree with most scholars that by the time Jesus appeared, the Jews were not by any means, any means, looking for a Messiah to be the Son of God, but were looking for an earthly king to emancipate them from physical bondage. Uh, but like one who is like unto Moses, who led their people out literally from bondage to Rome. Additionally, while pagan nations would speak of men being gods, pagan nations all around J the Jews spoke of men on earth being gods, even sons of God. The Jews would have considered Yahweh having a son to be absolutely mind-blowing. No way. Okay, so no Jew was expecting anything like a son, capital S, of God, capital G, to come out and redeem them. Uh, the Roman Empire had uh, a custom that they began to uh, assign divine sonship to their emperors. Uh, Caesar Augustus, the emperor when Jesus was born, was hailed, historical records, son of God, Lord, capital L, and was considered the savior of the world, According to Andrew T. Lincoln in his book, Born of a Virgin, the Romans called Caesar Augustus' birth the good news, and they believed that he was going to establish uh, what could reliably be considered the lasting reign of peace on earth. Lincoln, who is a distinguished professor, look him up, Andrew T. Lincoln of the New Testament says, quote, Luke's story of the Jesus' birth both echoes and challenges echoes and challenges the imperial propaganda about Augustus. So what he says is that when they started writing about Jesus, they started challenging uh, the Roman emperor and started saying, this is the son of God, he's brought the good news, and, and you need to look at this to show that they were off in their uh, uh, assessment. Harold points out, Charles Harold, uh, that while Jesus is referred to as the son of God more than 30 times in the New Testament, uh, only a few of those times does it refer to his biological birth. Why is this important? Let me make the case. The LDS believe that Jesus was the Son of God through his biological birth. They believe that Jesus existed as a created person prior to his biological birth. Of course, Christians don't believe he was created. They believe that he was first, the first created spirit child of Heavenly Father, and the rest of us followed in after him as being created spirit children as well. Trinitarianism teaches that Jesus was the Son of God at his biological birth. This is the only begotten. They believe that Jesus existed as a person prior to his biological birth. They believe that he is, uh, is the spirit son of Heavenly Father as well. The literal spirit son of Heavenly Father as well. 
in order for biblical Christianity to be able to see clearly and, and to see and to expose the failures of Mormonism, the traditional Christian view has to be stripped down uh, of what the Bible actually says uh, to show that we do not agree with much of what Smith borrowed from the faith and incorporated into his pseudo-gospel. What do I mean by this? Mormonism is a creation of Joseph Smith, and it's an amalgamation, it's an altered form of what I believe is faulty Trinitarian theology established at creedal Trinitarianism in 300 AD. In other words, vestiges of creedal Trinitarianism thrive in Joseph Smith's newfangled uh, view of the Godhead. In order for us to absolutely clear the path for Mormons and for Mormonism to be seen as faulty, we must divest ourselves of the traditions and myths that have, we have embraced as a means to show that Smith did nothing but create a counterfeit from a counterfeit. So I doubt this, what I'm saying, will ever get legs. Um, it'll take a Herculean effort for, uh, for all kinds of reasons and patience and a heartfelt willingness of seekers today to confront the myths and the things that we have long embraced in the body. And I am not gaining friends by pointing these things out. I'm not alone. I don't come up with this stuff. These guys have brought this out and studied it. You just don't know about them because they don't reach the bookstores and you don't see their names plastered all over things. They don't make you feel good when you read them. But they're there. I bring them forth to you as much as I brought forth the LDS stuff. Okay? But it's how much I care about reaching LDS. I don't care about getting, wanting them to just come out of Mormonism and just throw them away. I don't want them to come out of Mormonism and just become as narrow-minded and gullible in everything Christian as they were when they were LDS. We have to give them something that they can go and search and challenge and really look at and find that it's stable. But when we go and we preach these things and tell them, you can trust us, come out of that Mormonism fable, come to us, we'll teach you everything that's true, and we feed them a wheelbarrow full of traditions and myths, it's wrong. And we're not doing them any good because, look, at we get the emails. I started out, I left Mormonism, I went to a Christian church, I was really involved for a while, I played in the choir and all the, and then the pastor started saying, you know, you got to pay your tithes, and then the pastor started t t trying to discuss the Trinity, and then he said that my LDS relatives went to hell and they're going to burn there forever, and you know, and all the, and all this stuff is up for grabs. It's up for grabs theologically, and there's very good Christians who see it in a very different way than others. Theologian James Dunn posits things this way. He says, listen to this carefully. The first Christians thought of Jesus' divine sonship principally as a role and status he had entered upon being appointed, listen, being appointed at his resurrection. I'm, I am not alone in this. What? Let me read it to you again carefully. The first Christians thought of Jesus' divine sonship principally as the role and status he had entered upon upon being resurrected. Divine sonship was a role and status appointed at his resurrection? What? I mean, is, is this possible? Listen, Mormons and Christians alike 
have long accepted teachings that say Jesus was a literal figure, Mormons in one way, Christians in another, bearded, long hair, who stood next to his father, who had long gray bearded hair, for the eternities, uncreated, co-equal, always existing, right? And the Holy Spirit, the cousin, was also uncreated, co-equal, and always existing, but he's over there. He didn't have the beard and the hair. And this is what creedal Trinitarianism has promoted. This is what Mormonism has promoted to a certain extent. Both parties misappropriating Old Testament passages in some form or another in order to support eternal sonship or pre-incarnate sonship of some type. But is there another explanation that has escaped us that is viable, that can be supported by a biblical text? and that can clearly illustrate the, the other two sides being errant. For a Mormon to see the divine attribute of sonship given to Jesus upon his death and resurrection removes their literal biological sonship from what they have long endorsed. And for Trinitarian Christians to accept the historical and biblical view that he received it at his resurrection allows them to remove the idea of Jesus being a long-haired, brown-bearded man who stood by his father, long-haired, gray-bearded uh, being for eternity in eternity. And then we can start to see more clearly. Of course, neither side will want to accept this view, but will want to cling to the man-made stuff they've always traditionally taught and adored. But let me explain how I, I, th I think it says, and we're, next week we're going to give you the scriptures to support it before we move on. I would suggest there's no eternal sonship of Jesus, but there has always been God, uncreated God. Scripture describes him as fire, light, and love. Specifically, he is consuming fire, he is light, he is love. That is how he is described. I would suggest that the Bible teaches us that God relates, expresses himself by spirit and by words. I would suggest that a human child named Yeshua was conceived of a woman by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God was made flesh. I don't see any need for the bearded Jesus, for your pre-incarnate son, eternal sonship. We don't see any reason for all of that man-made rhetoric to come into play. I simply see as the Word was made flesh and dwelled among us. I believe that this child from the onset of his earthly existence was filled with the Word of God. And as a human, he was just like every other human, just like us, exactly. This son of God had to be taught. He learned things. He had the capacity to feel pleasure and pain. Hebrews tells us as a human child, though a son of God, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. That's a quote, Hebrews 5.8. In other words, this human child learned, learned to overcome the desires and will of his human flesh by living according to every word that was inside of him. Remember when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every uh, word that proceeds from the mouth of God? That's what he did because he was the word made flesh. As a means to get a grip on Jesus, let me ask you a question, Okay. Did Jesus, just get your knee-jerk reaction and then think, did Jesus need to be born again? Did Jesus need to be born again? Ask yourself that question. Regenerated, okay? 
Before you answer that, let me ask you this question. Was Jesus a man? Answer that question. To this, to this, Christians will say, yes, Jesus was a man. And then we have to look at Jesus' words in John 3, 3, that says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this man, Jesus, even though a child of God, full of spirit and truth, full of the word of God, had to be regenerated. He had to be in order, if he was a man, unless we want to throw that out and become Gnostics and say, no, 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 God would never, ever become a man. So he really wasn't a man. He either was a man or he wasn't. And if he was, he expressed and felt and went through the things that we go through. And if he did, he needed to be regenerated. So this man had to be, listen, this is important in my estimation. If he was a person who always existed as a personage with God from the beginning, as a personage, and was co-equal with God as this person, as the LDS say, he was the first uh, spirit-born child in the pre-existence, then the notion of him needing to experience regeneration is foolish. There'd be no reason on earth for him to experience it. He would have come down as God. He would have walked among us. No reason for regeneration. But if he was 100% all man, like we claim, if his mind, will, and emotion were human, if his and did he die? He died on a cross. If his pre-existence was in the form of being the word of God and not a person, then unless he was born again, he would not even see the kingdom of God. So I would suggest that Jesus had to be regenerated before entering into the kingdom of God. Now, because he is the only begotten of the Father and the arche of the human race, the first, I'm con personally convinced that what he did and how he did it in terms of chronology are not exactly what happens to us. Uh, how much time, Derek? Where are we at? Uh, 25. Okay. Uh, in other words, there is so much that was about the Lord's mission and purpose here on earth that what he accomplished and did is impossible for us to accomplish and do. We don't have the same mission and ministry upon each individual. We might say that he physically was the primary physical template uh, for the redemption of man spiritually, Okay. So he came into his own, uh, which God established through Abraham and David, and physically and individually accomplished all that was necessary for those of his own to receive him, and then for the rest of the world. And the idea uh, that Jesus was or had to be born again and regenerated is a concept um, that is rejected in evangelicalism today. There's no way, they would say. Don Preston, he says, quote, the reality and necessity of Christ's new birth is well established in Scripture and is vital for a proper understanding of eschatology. Don't believe me? Tune in next week and we'll finish it up by showing in Scripture how it clearly proves that he was regenerated at his resurrection. That's where he was born again. And then we'll decide if that applies to us in the same way. And I'll show an error that I think most of the scholars I think are making in saying it does. It does apply to us in the same way. And they're even saying men and women are not regenerated while they're here on earth. They're only regenerated at resurrection. I would say that's a false jump, a false leap. So it's a heavy discussion. I understand that. It's not as fun as talking about uh, all the things LDS and the crazy stuff, mountain meadows and polygamy, etc. But we should be talking about it because it gets us through a lot of uh, ground that has to be discussed. All right, before we go to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
801-590-8413. We're going to watch a spot. Go Delaney. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, translation things, you know, like the King James Bible. But anyway, uh, I wanted to bring up a point about the law. I noticed in your uh, your Sunday school classes that you're giving, you're in Acts right now, and you're going through a lot of things about Acts. And uh, when you get to chapter 15, down in verse 5, it says uh, that they were rose up, these Pharisees, and they wanted to, to circumcise the new Christians, the Gentiles, and they wanted them to keep the law of Moses. That's in verse 5. Now, I, want you, I want you to hear what Peter says in verse 10 of chapter 15. He said, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor us could live or were able to bear? Right here is the apostle Peter, the leader of the church at that time, saying that they couldn't even keep the law. This is the law of Moses. So, now I want to just, uh, why I brought this up, because down in another verse in 24, uh, it says, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandments. The apostles did not give a commandment, so we had to keep the law and be circumcised. Both those things, not just the circumcision, but the law of Moses, and that takes in a whole bunch of stuff. Now, if we go over, I want to switch to Romans a minute, listen to Paul here. Uh, God, and this is what I'm bringing this up for is because it says in verse, uh, uh, excuse me here, 
chapter five, verse, I mean, chapter three, verse uh, 25, that Jesus is our righteousness for the remissions of sins. It's his work that brought the righteousness, his perfectness. His, he was not a sinner. And, and, and it's imputed to us. Blessed is the man whose righteousness is imputed to him, that he is not accountable to the law because he's, he, Jesus has forgiven us the trespasses. And uh, then on to uh, the really important part is what I wanted to bring up tonight was Joseph Smith's inspired translation of the Bible. On this verse here, chapter 4, verse 5 in Romans, it says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on God that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Joseph Smith changed that doctrine right there in his inspired version. And he said, did not justify the ungodly. Wow. He put the, he put the word not in there. I didn't he know He changed that. the grace of God. He changed the grace of God to works. Right there. I did not know so that. You go look it up and look in the inspired translation. I promise you, I had it. I read that whole entire inspired translation. And there's all kinds of stuff like that in there. That's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Isn't that amazing? Really appreciate it, John. So anyway, I just want to make out a few of those points, and I'm following you in the acts. And uh, also, uh, you remember I called in a while back about uh, about the law being added because of trans uh, transgressions, and that uh, that Stephen said that they followed an angel because God had they wouldn't follow God, they wouldn't believe in God, and trust in Him, so He gave them the law because of transgression. And if you go and read that, you'll see that, that they were worshiping Moses and all that stuff. Not Moses, but they were worshiping Moloch, and the tent of Moloch was all set up because they refused to follow, through grace, God in heaven at that time by belief. Anyway, that's all i got to say tonight. I appreciate you letting me on there. Thanks, John. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, great points because it is all about grace, and if you're going to justify yourself by the law, so you are, uh, you have failed from grace. You have fallen from grace, is what Paul says. Paul makes an interesting point. He says, if you work, if you do a job, you labor, then you have, you have put the your employer in your debt, because you have gone and you have worked, and so your employer has to pay you. And so when you go and you try to establish your own righteousness through your own works. What you're saying is, I have put God in my debt, and God has to pay me back for the things I have earned. That's what the works, that's why Christians are always so against the works, the works, because you're working, I've gone and I've worked 40 hours for you, God. You owe me a paycheck for those 40 hours. Paul makes this clear. And so, when you're saved by grace, there is nothing that you can do to put God in your debt. He freely saves you. He is the one who does it. By his grace you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then James points out that, you know, if you try to obey the whole law and break it in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. And so that law becomes this massive weight that just crushes you. Really interesting stuff. And that's why we reach out and started reaching out to the LDS, because I was crushed, and I tried to do it and make it and earn it, and I couldn't do it. I was constantly showing up late for work or missing or calling in sick when I was really skiing. I, I couldn't do it as a Mormon. And yet, when I learned about grace, that's when my eyes opened. I said, now, now suddenly it's making sense. Jesus came and did. He showed up for work for me. Remember, years ago, we had someone call 
the show, and he was LDS. Hey, Sean, do you, uh, you, you do a job. Do you show up for work? Are, are, you ever, are you ever late? Do you do your job? And I kept saying, no, I don't do my job. I'm a bum. Oh, come on now. Just come on. Knock it off. You do your job. I don't do my job. I'm a bad employer. I'm a rebellious employee. Come on. He just kept trying to go down that line, and that's kind of the mindset, you know? You do your work. God is in your debt. He has to pay you off. And that is really opposite of what uh, Paul has to say. Listen, this is from William G. He talks about the Mormon caliphate. Do you know what that is, a Mormon caliphate? Caliphate is is uh, Islamic term, and it's uh, let it's a state, like a state of Utah, uh, where it's led by a religious leader, political religious leader. And so he's talking about the the idea of Mormon caliphate. Is there such a thing? He says, although the subject may not be frightening now as it was in 2008. The LDS political kingdom seems to be stirring again. Mitt Romney is preparing to endorse Marco Rubio, who was baptized a Mormon and might still be a member of record, as the only potential alternative to Trump. On the other side, we have Glenn Beck, Mormonism's Elmer Gantry, asking for his followers to fast on behalf of Ted Cruz and suggesting that God put Antonio Scalia out of the way to frighten Americans into supporting Cruz for president. Uh, he gets, and this guy says, all this made me think of was on the Mormon Caliphate, which was established under Brigham Young and has gone into dormancy, but is still very much alive. While you're probably aware of these statements, I'll share them nonetheless. And now he quotes Brigham Young's statements. These are really quite fascinating. And we talked about this when Romney ran, but listen. Quote, every person in heaven is at liberty when they have the privilege to organize a kingdom for themselves. But unless they are submissive to their presidents on earth, they can never have the privilege to the last day of eternity. If they are faithful here, they will be made gods in eternity. All things will have to bow to Mormonism or eternal light and truth. We have the true government of all the earth. Everything is against Mormonism and Mormonism is against everything. Everything is against us. We shall fight them until the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God. We shall battle. We shall fight battle after battle until the victory is won. That's from the Complete Discourses of Brigham Young, Volume 1, page 440, 448, and 461. And then he goes on and says, Like Joseph Smith, Brigham Young was ordained prophet, seer, prophet priest, and king over Israel on earth. The term caliphate means successor, as a successor to the prophet, uh, Brigham Young clearly saw himself in that role, and he gives us one more from volume 2, page 1108 of Journal of Discourses, and it says, quote, If I could have the desire of my heart, this is Brigham Young speaking, I would know precisely the will of Joseph concerning me, and how to dictate this people. All I ask for is to be guided by the spirit of Joseph then let others be governed by their head or priesthood. Joseph enjoyed the privileges which I never thought I had. Joseph was called of God. I was called of Joseph. And so you see that order, that man, that caliphate, that power, and he says Joseph had it first. He's even admitting here, I have it from Joseph. What's the spirit of Joseph want me to do? All right, uh, also we have an email three years ago. My daughter was born again after 40 years of being an active Latter-day Saint. For the next two years, she tried 
any way she could to show me false doctrine. I resisted relying on farms and fair to bolster my faith, give me answers. She showed me YouTubes of your show. I couldn't stand watching you because I thought you were a bully like she was. I probably was. Uh, well, fast forward to the last few months. I've watched other defenders of biblical Christianity. Somehow I kept coming back to watching you, and you're now all I watch. I've told my serious concerns to the LDS faith of my, uh, to my bishop and stake president. Neither have answers, and have, I have subsequently left the church. I have another daughter who continues to be active with her LDS husband and children. The hard part of this is she emailed me and told me, do not contact me in any way. Phone, email, snail mail, gifts. Six months has passed. I can't believe it. We were so close. And now my husband, LDS, has told me he's going to divorce me after 49 years of marriage. What kind of crazy religion is this? My world has imploded but she adds a line that's really important i have to lean on christ now more than ever that's what it's all about man that's what it's all about he gets you to lean you want to seek you want to find he gets you and then he says okay it's going to get really tough now and then you start leaning on him and that's what he's always wanted is for us to lean on him uh kim from alberta says uh we enjoy listening to your shows as we renovate our house we like the older ones better when you are addressing mormonism more a few questions and comments I'd like to address on your show. In the temple, Adam is asked if he sold his signs and tokens for money. This is Adam, first man on earth. What kind of currency would have been created since any, there was nobody else in his family? So uh, Adam represents all of humanity in that temple film. So when that is being played out and Satan says, do you sell your signs and tokens for money? It's really to tell the current LDS temple recommend temple attendees who are watching the film, you know, do you sell your, you know, do you do this for money? And it's really speaking out to the people who are there in the temple because the announcer says, you re represent Adam and Eve as if you were in the Garden of Eden. That's how they make the reference to money there. It's not that Adam, and then Adam does say, I, I, whatever he says about money, uh, I do not do, what does he say? I do not do anything for money, uh, something like that. So, uh, and then he says, just before going through the veil, they all just make covenants with the church, dedicating all their time, talents, and possessions to the church for the building up of the kingdom of God. But Christ said something like this, my kingdom is not of this earth. And yeah, point well taken. And he says, I think the Mormons would take you more seriously if you didn't refer to the Book of Mormon as the Book of Mormonian. And uh, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, I have no more. Uh, we have no calls. I have no more emails. We're going to continue on next week as we talk about uh, Christ, Son of God. And let me just wrap it up quickly and say this. Listen, I believe that Christ was God in the flesh. No doubt. That's how I believe completely. And I believe he's the only way to salvation. But I do believe there's a lot of variables on how we really explain this, understand this. And I think that God did not come down here to confuse everybody and just to make sure that only a few who really got everything right would be saved. And I think he does this, it's my opinion, so that we will learn to get along and we'll learn to love more than argue and try to figure things out. So don't get too hyped up on, on these things. I'm just pointing out some of the facts behind our own Christian history as we try to relate to the LDS 
and so that we can have maybe a little bit more understanding, less dogma when we're talking to an LDS person, and they say, well, I believe, you say, well, you know, it's all right, you know, what do you think of Jesus? Have you been born again? Do you, do you believe you're saved by your works? Things like that. Let's just tone it down, let's get rid of all the vitriol, all the rhetoric, all the finger pointing, and just try to bring in the fact that many, many good LDS people are seeking for God, and they relate to him, and many know Jesus. Let's just keep going on that. We'll see you next week here on I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't become This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel 